Welcome to another episode of the Healthy Indoors Show. I'm your host, Bob Krell, here from Syracuse, New York. Um, we're streaming out live to healthyindoors.com, as well as all of our support uh, sites around the globe. Uh, we have a great panel today. We're continuing our discussions that we've been doing for the past several weeks on the COVID-19 pandemic here at Healthy Indoors. Uh, just a reminder, um, healthyindoors.com will get you access uh, to the free editions of our digital online magazine, which comes out every month, um, as well as all of our repository of videos, um, articles, and uh, all of our back information. Um, and you can, all, of course, access all the um, past episodes of the Healthy Indoors show. Uh, as of last week, we created a podcast as well. So if you'd like to listen to us while you're driving down the street, you can also listen to audio recordings of uh, each week's shows. So every week we come to you here live from 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time now during the summer. And uh, I'd like to uh, take this opportunity and uh, welcome the panel here. Today's uh, topic for discussion is going to be on the front lines of COVID-19, and we'll be looking at the medical slash healthcare perspective of that, um, take a little bit more in depth. So uh, our first panelist, uh, she has a bachelor's degree in nursing and has worked extensively in the mental health field and also sidelines for an EMS company at large public events in Detroit. From Clemens, Michigan, Mount Clemens, Michigan, it's Christy Garbarino. Welcome, Christy. How Thank you. you, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, he is a paramedic, having uh, first done his response work in Rochester, New York, and now in Syracuse, New York, and he's an ardent karaoke singer. Jesse Turner. Thank you. How are you doing today? <laughs> um, our next panelist is a medical doctor who specializes in family uh, medicine practice uh, in Syracuse, New York, Dr. John Charles. Good afternoon, everybody. Good to see you again. Um, we also have uh, from Binghamton, New York, a sourcing specialist for a group of upstate New York hospitals with over 30 years experience in the healthcare industry, uh, primarily in surgical services. And he knows way too much uh, about where the skeletons in my uh, closet are buried. Uh, Jeff Oliver, good to see you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, back with us again. Um, he's the program director for environmental health uh, the Environmental Health Program at Children's Mercy Hospital in Kansas City, Missouri, Kevin Kennedy. Good to be here. Thank you. Uh, last but not least on our panelists, Dr. David Krause, the founder of Healthcare Consulting and Contracting, HC3 in Tallahassee, Florida. Um, he is a an industri certified industrial hygienist, uh, toxicologist, has over 25 years experience in public health, occupational hazard assessments, and indoor air quality. Good to see you, David. Now, I, from what I understand in the pre-wrap, uh, he's uh, currently uh, under tornado warning in Tallahassee. So if he suddenly blows away like the house in the Wizard of Oz, uh, best luck with that. Yes, and yes. We'll, last we'll but not least, out. last but not least, he is a healthy building scientist for Hayward Score and our chief provocateur, once again in the co-pilot seat, Joe Medosh. So... <sighs> How come it's not over yet? No, I, that was just a rhetorical question. Let's uh, let's ask a, ask a couple of questions here and just uh, get get the uh, thing going. What, what I guess you know, what should we be doing from a medical perspective um, that maybe we're not doing, right? And uh, you know, and how is that affecting our infrastructure? And I, and I really, I'm going to go down because again the. The panel that we have here is from a diverse group. We have some first responders uh, from nursing, from from the medical 
you know, medical practitioners that actually deal with family practice, which is great because that's really down to uh, the nuts and bolts of what people are doing here. Um, I, I guess I'll start with, uh, I'm, I'm going to start with uh, Jeff because I really am curious you know, he works in the hospital community trying to get supplies. And we all hear on, on the news um, that there's just a shortage of everything, right? You can't get N95 respirators, uh, you know, personal protective gear is in short order, even for first responders and medical professionals. What's, go, what's going on in the industry, Jeff? That, you know, like how, what are you facing from the standpoint of trying to actually acquire these supplies? Uh, well, I have to say that everything you're hearing in the media is, uh, well, probably most of what you're hearing in the media about that is true. Uh, the world wasn't ready for this. We didn't have uh, warehouses of N95 masks and uh, hand sanitizer just waiting around for this to happen. Um, so uh, take, being taken by surprise with the volume of what's happening and the, uh, the initiative to be um, proactive about stopping, uh, you know, putting, putting this to rest as, as soon as we can. There's been a huge vacuum created and uh, thereby, it's very, very hard to source stuff. And uh, there's all kinds of people coming out with all sorts of innovative ways and products to, to address it. And, uh, you know, we're, for us, it's a day-to-day -day matter. Um, I can only imagine what it's like in uh, some of the facilities that are really being hard hit by this. But even in our case, with um, just a few cases in town, or, you know, what I understand is going on in the rest of upstate, um, you know, we're, we're prepared, but we're always living on the edge wondering if, uh, you know, we're going to have enough to get through the next week. So, I mean, we're, you know, talk, so talking about, so the hospitals obviously are, are experiencing shortages or a scramble to try to get supplies, the protective gear that you need. Uh, but, you know, we've got first responders here. So Jesse uh, Turner, again, is a paramedic. He actually works out in the field. He's responding to medical emergencies all the time. Um, you know, how, how has uh, what's happened with this recent pandemic, pandemic how has it affect, affected the way you approach uh, your first responder calls, you know, as a result well, of this? It starts right with, uh, right with your primary assessment. I mean, you go in and you're seeing these people from across the room. Usually I'm a hands-on guy. I'll go up and talk to you, touch you, get your pulse, assess everything right up close. And now I'm doing it <laughs> at a distance, and that's just different for me. Uh, also, we're encouraging more people to... Uh, actually stay at home if it's a chronic or non-emergent condition, which can be tough to assess because sometimes people don't all present the same way. You might not see an emergency that they are having. Um, it just comes down to really determining whether or not, according to our new, new guidelines, they should be transported. That does impact your bottom line because I do work for a for-profit company, which reduces and they end up reducing shifts and that could create a shortage of transporting ambulances in the city. <laughs> but Jesse, I want to follow up with what you just said. <clears throat> One of the things that happens to somebody that when they're feeling, you know, have an issue and they need a paramedic is that you are a reassurance, not just, you know, to check me out physically, but it's also an emotional. Yeah. Like, oh my God, thank God somebody's here to help me. And now you are restricted on, some of the things that can do. So can you kind of talk briefly about how, how you've been able to overcome some of the, the restrictions to make sure you're alleviating this person's anxiety on trying to resolve why you're there? Well, again, you have to identify whether or not it is an actual life threat. You explain to them to that right up front, what the, let them weigh the risks of staying at home versus going to a hospital or some of the more busy hospitals where they might actually come in contact with other COVID patients. Um, they might just, you know, have 
I mean, I've gotten calls for people with chronic gastritis or uh, GERD, and they want to go get checked out in the ER. It might not be the safest thing for them. <laughs> so it ultimately comes up to whether or not uh, we're following our guidelines and making sure that they should or that they are allowed the option to transport or not. And then it ultimately becomes up to them whether or not I can't deny transport. If they really want to go, I'm going to take them. Are you seeing a higher incidence of people, you know, calling for those transport services now? I mean, as, I, as to before the... You had a nice lull where people were uh, scared. <laughs> they did not want to go to the hospital and, and sometimes they needed to go and you had to convince them. Uh, other times you've got to talk people with, uh, you know, it could be a less serious that they need to follow up with their primary provider. Uh, a lot of them haven't been able to do that because some primaries have been either closed or not seeing patients in the same ways that the patients are comfortable with. Um, it ultimately comes down to the individual. Yeah, I mean, that brings up, that brings up the question of primary care physicians. Uh, we have with us uh, Dr. John Charles. Um, Jack, how's, how is, how is your practice changing? Now, you've been almost 30 years, right? In practice, family practice. Yeah, I started in 1990. Um, so, you know, this this really got started. We have the good fortune of being a larger primary care group of about 55 physicians and another 30 mid-level uh, providers, but we're all in our own little offices. And we have a uh, president, the president of the group right now is an infectious disease specialist. So on March the 7th, we had kind of what we, we call uh, like a coronavirus retreat where we started to talk about all these issues, the issues of PPE, how are we gonna do that? What are we gonna do with patients? And it's, it's really changed a great deal and continues to change every day. The, the way that we handle people who call the office, you know, you, now you have to really figure out what you're gonna do with, with each patient, you know, pretty much at the beginning of this and as we go, we try to avoid seeing people in the office for things that they don't really need until it's a little bit uh, a little bit more acceptable and safe to go out. So things as it, uh, such as uh, a face-to-face -face visit, uh, we would we initially and, and still do kind of reserve for things that we know we have to see in the flesh. For example, I've had a couple of cases where people needed to be sutured, uh, people with abdominal pain where you really need that tactile idea of what their abdomen feels like and what's going on. Um, other, other assessments like a cellulitis or things where people need uh, antibiotics uh, or injectables, uh, certain you know, procedures and blood draws. So we, we have that group of people. And then the next group of people are ones that you can see and do telemedicine visits, which to me after 27 years of medicine was something I didn't ever think I would get to since I was planning on retiring later this year. And I'm not, but so, so, the, so video and telemedicine have, you know, you can do a lot of things over those, particularly things uh, such as uh, mental health things, anxiety, depression. You can follow up on hypertension if the patient's able to monitor their blood pressure, diabetes. Um, so that so that's another group. And then in the midst of all this, we had to figure out a way to assess respiratory cases and really uh, be careful with how we handled them. So we, we had a testing program that we were running in our parking lot. And I think the data have tested about 120 people. So, you know, each call kind of had to be handled in a much more sharper sense as to what you were going to do and how you were going to handle that particular patient. 
uh, as time's gone on, people are more comfortable with going out. We always offer them the option to postpone or to, uh, to do a video visit if it's, if it's appropriate. And, and like I say, many things are. Um, and then the other part is we had to figure out how we're going to handle patients with the limitations that we have with our protective equipment. We were able to get enough protective equipment to, to figure out in a rational way how to handle people uh, who have respiratory illnesses. And really, as I said, we do any of our, our coronavirus cultures have been done in our parking lot. Even if we see somebody in the office, we try not to do uh, to, to, to rile up the virus uh, in the office. We've changed our office uh, ex extensively. We only see respiratory cases in a certain part of the office. It's, you know, and, and then make sure that the equipment and is, is changed and, and surfaces are wiped down. So compared to what we used to do, it's, it's a whole new world. Uh, it really has been um, a lot of stresses, a lot of things to think about. And, um, and the other, the other thing is that with the extra time, uh, we've, we, my partner, I'm on the two physician practice. My partner's been volunteering for the county and doing follow-up work for the county on case on Corona cases. Um, while well, I sort of uh, tend, tend the farm. So it's been a very busy and a very different time. Sorry to go on and on. But. No, it's, it's, it's a valid perspective. Now, uh, Christy um, works uh, in the Detroit, Michigan area uh, at a mental health facility. Right. Um, so, and, and that's what you've predominantly dealt with. So how, how do you, you know, so you're not in, in a, a typical medical ho hospital setting. You're, you're in a specialized medical setting. Uh, right. How does that differ you know, for the environment that you're working in and some of those parameters? Well, it's really, it's difficult for us to practice social distancing in a hospital like this because the, the patients are allowed to walk around the unit. Everybody's in everybody's face. Somebody's arguing with somebody. Um, they don't cough. They don't cover their mouths when they cough or they sneeze. They stand and they're always, they're this far from you. So sorry about this, but they're like this far from you. Um, we don't have much in the way of PPE to offer the patients as they're walking around and talking to others. We did have a handful of masks that everybody got one, um, but these are mental health patients, so they don't wear them. They don't wear them correctly. Um, and we have to be very, very careful as to not create additional fear and paranoia with these patients. So here they're being bombarded constantly with all this stuff on the news. And then we have to make sure that we're trying to teach social distancing and hand sanitizing and washing hands and covering your mouth when you sneeze. And um, they get very nervous and scared about it. So it's, it just, it's a whole different set of challenges than it is in the outside world. And we, as the providers, we don't have much in the way of PPE. As a matter of fact, my aunt just made me 11 masks, nice. which, yeah, because I don't have anything. I have rubber gloves and I have cloth masks that are being made for me. So, um, we had just a small handful of gowns in order to protect our, ourselves from the patients that did come up positive, um, but they're disposable and they only last so long and we only have so many. So we just have to, you know, just kind of deal with it, I guess. I, I mean, I don't know any other like way to describe it. it are, are you seeing a lot of numbers of uh, patients testing positive? I know Michigan yes. uh, is kind of a hotspot yes. in New York. Yeah, and actually what's what's actually happening is some of the local emergency rooms are sending us patients that are COVID positive, either before the test results have come back positive or negative, or they didn't know. 
So they're trying like in, I don't know how it is in the other states, but in the state of Michigan, we have very few psych facilities that are walk-in facilities. The facility I work in is a walk-in facility, um, but most of the patients have to go through an ER in order to get to any psych facility. So in this time of crisis, it was happening before, but especially in this time of crisis, the ERs are trying to get these people out and they're just sending them to a psych facility without the uh, proper testing. So we don't always know. You, you, a lot of things you described are things that I, I almost expected you to say, but mm-hmm. um, those are the physical challenges. Can you just briefly describe some of the things you're doing to overcome the mental stress or the anxiety that comes along with not having enough PPE? Just what, what are you doing to? What am I doing? Yeah, to not stress, get stressed out about your environment or your conditions. Um, personally, I still have to go to work every day and, and take care of these people. So truth be told, mostly what I do is sleep. I'm so tired at the end of the day that I'm sleeping a lot. And, um, um, I live with my sister right now and she just makes sure that I go to, to work with a good lunch and she makes sure that I have dinner and she makes sure that my, the towels are clean and folded. So that way I don't have to worry about this stuff because I have other things to worry about right now. Um, my biggest concern right now is because of the population of people that I work with and they come out of group homes and nursing homes and homeless shelters where some of the, where this virus is running rampant is bringing it home to my daughter. So her and I, there's not a whole lot of, you know, hugging and snuggling and all that other stuff. And I I just deal with it because I have to take care of these people, virus or no virus. We normally tell people that are military really, hey, thank you for your service. But that's now expanded to a whole nother level of other people that are giving. So thank you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. And that's, you know, I think that's something to really point out. All of you on the front line in the medical communities, you know, whether, whether you be first responders or, you know, doctors, um, you don't really have the luxury of being able to distance. You know, there's some distancing. I'm fortunate. I'm an online uh, streaming host and do online publications. So really, this is kind of what I do anywhere, where I headsets and get in front of cameras. Um, So I can distance quite well. But that's you don't have that luxury. Uh, Bob, I'd like to ask Christy and and Jack a question. The um, it sounds as if you're having to learn this as you go along. I right. wouldn't say make yes. it up as you go along, but it, this seems to be a, a office by office, facility by facility, mm-hmm. um, trial and error kind of approach. Are you receiving any guidance from the AMA or from JCO or from the feds or the state on what you can do to increase your man, uh, risk management? Well, we're really just kind of following all the same guidelines that have been given by, from the CDC to the general public. Uh, the one thing that we're doing that I think Jack touched on earlier is that we're just, we're every, every two hours, my facility cleans all the surfaces and doorknobs in, in the hospital. So that's really kind of the same things that everybody, everybody's been given, you know, hand sanitizer, um, constant hand washing, you know, the same things that we should, really should have been doing all along from the beginning, yeah, but yeah. yeah, I mean, really it's- Well, I, you know, I will share with you. I mean, I am currently have been working in some state um, mental facilities uh, where we were working with them before. And since this has all started, um, uh, also some prisons where, you know, social distancing is not an option. No. Nope. Uh, in, in industrial hygiene, we really look at things uh, kind of categorically. We start with administrative controls. Uh, what can you do to avoid the exposure or avoid the hazard to begin with? And then a lot of that is what you're already doing with, um, you know, not seeing patients if you don't have to see them, uh, doing stuff out in the, in the 
parking lot rather than in the office. Uh, the, and, and then beyond that, we actually start looking at engineering controls. And that's an area I don't hear discussed within the medical community and have certainly um, tried to get the, the benefits of some engineering controls layered on top of the administrative controls. And then you rely upon PPE. The, the PPE is, you know, everyone runs to that immediately. And as an industrial hygienist, I'll tell you, that's the last thing. It's the last level. Yeah. 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 I mean, that, that's the, mm. I can't control it any other way. Um, but some of the engineering controls, you know, you see some simple ones such as uh, splash guards or shields uh, at the cash registers or, you know, in places where, you know, people are doing a transaction. Uh, the disinfection um, is a, a really an engineering control. Uh, but it has to be done well, not just right. It has to be done well. And that's another side that, you know, we, it takes a lot to get a good environmental services staff to disinfect rooms and common areas effectively. I mean, that's just a constant battle for every uh, medical uh, facility I know. And, uh, you know, that's another area where we could all stand a lot of improvement. I, I want to say it. Uh, oh, sorry, Jack. We, we really have to handle uh, any patient as if they have the virus. Anybody's yeah. symptomatic, we do handle that way. So, for example, in the afternoons, we usually have one provider who does the respiratory cases or any, any cases that are you know sus suspicious that have to be seen. That person comes, drives in, calls us from the parking lot is escorted through an empty waiting room because we see no other patients during that time frame, And you see them as the provider, usually, well, pretty much in an N95 in a gown that gets changed. We do have a little bit of a shortage of N95s. So it, a lot of times you're wearing that same mask. And then when that person leaves is escorted out by a nurse who's also gowned up back to their car, you, I would clean clean up the room, wipe it all down. And then, you know, go to the, we have two rooms that we do this and I just go around the corner into the other room that was clean after the last patient and see the next patient. But so, so we really were trying, but that's something we just made up to try to limit as much exposure to our staff and to other patients so that people don't even consort with each other, especially ones that are potentially are sick, but it's tough. It's, it's definitely, we weren't prepared for this. We were kind of making it up as we go. Yeah, which raises the question. So where are you getting the guidance that you're getting to to actually, you know, you're making it up as you go, but I, I'm assuming that you're, you're looking at some cognizant authorities, right, to try to get some, you know, CDC, some somebody to, to lean on to help uh, guide you here. Well, yeah. So we have a, we have a, every office in our group is a little bit different. We have uh, an infectious control officer, uh, Sue uh, Chamberlain, and then we have the, the president who's an infectious disease specialist. So we are getting some guidance, probably better than many other offices. Um, but every office's physical plan is different. And every office is different in terms of the number of providers and the types of patients they see. So it's, it's really all over the board. And we don't, I mean, ideally, you would have a whole separate you know, entrance. And I mean, there's all kinds of different things that you, you could, you would like to have that you just don't have when all of a sudden something like this happens. And, and there, there's a bathroom in your facility that, you know, now it gets potentially, oh, I need to, you know, so there's a lot of uh, intermediary things that also get addressed. So, yeah. yeah and, and absolutely. 
one of the things we learned last week was that people who normally don't do the a sterilization cleanup are now required to do that. Or some people that don't even do normal cleanup, like most cashiers have, have not been cleaning their station. And now Chicken they have juice. to do it. Yeah. They now have to do it between every, uh, every person that comes through. So there's a, uh, a lack of actual education as to how to do this as uh, Dr. Krause said, well, um, right. versus just, you know, spraying and hoping that you kind of wiped it down good enough. And because yeah. there's t 23 people waiting to check out. Yeah. Right. Yeah, my guys in the army used to call it spray and pray, you know, but they were using something else. Well, and none of them get any uh, uh, training or education on a proper fitting of a mask at all, uh, proper taking off of uh, things, you know. Once, how do you take well, gloves and, and off without recontaminating? There's all of right. these very basic things. Exactly. And then that's one of the big things that we're concerned with, especially at these facilities where if the caregiving staff, not just the medical staff, but the caregiving staff at the, at the uh, mental health facilities or the prisons, if they get sick, if they can't come to work, or if they get so scared that they won't come to work, what do you do? Exactly. You don't have an option. And you don't have other people trained who suddenly have to take their place. Uh, or who are willing to take their place. Jesse, uh, 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 that's right, Jesse, paramedic? Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you, so you're used to PPE. You've, you yeah. uh, have to deal with bloodborne pathogens or potential risk when you go to uh, uh, an emergency situation. How have you guys changed your protocol uh, with this add-on of a potential major infectious agent that could potentially infect you, let alone others that you may come in contact with or who uh, might get into your uh, vehicle? Well, there's a, there's a lot more assessment going on outside of the vehicle, on scene, in their homes, or on the side of the road, if it's safe, uh, we try to do it there. If we're transporting a confirmed COVID patient, say that they needed to transport to go home to cell quarantine or to another facility, um, I mean, an ambulance is a six by six box with a lot of surfaces, <laughs> uh, sometimes smaller. Some of these ambulances are very small. Um, you just have to do your best to try to main, or keep the patient from you know touching anything keep them bundled and <laughs> kind of make a little burrito out of them um and just spread points of or limit points of contact um yes there's a lot of equipment going involved in doing an assessment on a patient if you're just taking their blood pressure and saturation and everything that's you know six different wires now i've got to wipe down and however many services uh -huh. they brushed against and, and and we just do our best we uh, we are keeping yeah. track Jesse, of our times what? but yeah well, that and and Jesse, the, the problem you're talking about is exactly what we used to deal with in radiation events. When you had you anticipated, you've got people who, uh, or you can tell they've been contaminated with radioactive materials and nuclides. We would actually put them in the protective gear. Yeah. Before you put them into the to the ambulance, so you don't uh, contaminate your ambulances. But I don't know that there's enough protective suits, Tyvek suits, or anything to 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 be able to do that I mean, that would that would raise an issue that i wanted to ask of jeff um because obviously you know in the surgical especially you're involved with uh surgical uh circumstances there's more of i there's generally right and correct me if i'm wrong there's more of a concern in the operating theater of the staff the medical staff contaminating the patient right and creating a yeah, creating the, an infection the, the as opposed to but but now now we have a potential where we've got people that are walking around literally as a human uh you know 
time bombs, right? Potentially contaminated. So how does that change the reaction? Like a, a, a surgeon is wearing a surgical mask, which really doesn't protect the surgeons, protect the surgeon from spewing stuff down into the open wound, right? <laughs> For the right. Most part. So, so we're looking at the, you know, the, the techniques that we can use to uh, protect uh, the surgeon from the patient in these cases. And I think what it's going to come on, come down to is um, testing and also some of the engineering practices that, you know, the, the other panelists have referenced in uh, making sure that before, if when things open up and in New York state, the word on the street is that we are going to be starting to do more procedures again, that, uh, you know, the patients are selected and they have to be, um, uh, I guess, vetted to be uh, whether or not they can be brought into the facility because every one of them is a, as you say, a potential time bomb. Or, uh, and, uh, you know, so we're trying to protect the staff just as well, because if we, you know, um, they, if, you know, that goes down, the whole program goes down. It's, you know, it's the same, same analogy we're looking at in the rest of the world. Like, you know, as, as we said, in some of the um, uh, jail facilities and, and other places or any, any other healthcare facility, if you, you know, we have to protect the staff or else, um, you know, there's nobody to do the job. I mean, and that's a risk across the board, right? From the first responder all the way down to the, to the uh, people in critical carriers to family practice, right, Jack? I mean, it's like all of you are potentially, you know, higher risk to be exposed ba just based on what you have to do as part of the services you provide. You, you have, you, you, right? Right. I mean, if, it, you know, basically, you know, part of my job is to keep people away from hospitals, so, you know, not, not the, uh, right now hospitals are not the places to go so that Jesse doesn't have to come and, and see them. So we're trying to do that. But if, if, if I get sick, or even worse, one of my staff members gets sick, then the system starts to break down because it's gonna, it, everything escalates. So really, you know, everybody is a potential, you know, time bomb or hot potato, and you just have to try your best to, to, to make right, you know, good choices and keep everyone safe. It, it really, it really is, uh, it is that way. So I want to interject one question to you as a group, and this is not a political question, nor do I expect a political answer, but um, why don't you express your um, wishes about testing? Because I think we all wish that there was, you may not have an immediate test. Like I, I can remember all of us were kids. We couldn't tell you if you had strep throat. Now I can go into a doctor's office and they can tell me before I leave if I have strep throat, but that day will come for this type of virus. But right now, even just to know within two or three days that this person that I was in front of or near or next to had it or employee screening, a variety of stuff, anything that would tell me within a, a reasonable amount of time would be good. So um, let's go to Christy briefly. So why don't you explain how what would you hope that testing um, could do for you briefly? Like, yes, I, if testing was around, this is the reassurance I would get from it. Um, my preference would be a titers test, actually, um, to see if I was carrying antibodies and therefore already immune. That I mean, that would just be ideal for me or anybody in healthcare. Um, I believe there are some rapid tests right now. And I think in Metro Detroit, um, as a healthcare provider, I can get a rapid test if I wanted one. Great. So it is available to me. Um, I have not shown any symptoms. I, I haven't been sick. I haven't had anything. So I would like to know if I've already been exposed to it and I'm already, you know, carrying antibodies. 
That's Christy, isn't I mean. that one of the big questions of, of even if you are carrying antibodies, mm -hmm. what is your immunity? Is yeah. there immunity? Uh, how long yes, does it right. last if you have it? I mean, Who I think that's still kind of. Yeah, does anyone actually point. know? No, I don't. That's the whole thing. I don't know. But wouldn't it be wouldn't it be interesting if we if us if, as healthcare providers who haven't gotten sick, because I work with some people who have who are out right now because they have been exposed and they're showing symptoms and they're sick and they've tested positive. I am not one of those providers right now. So I work a lot. So I, I'm just wondering how it is that I've escaped this. Jack's yes. chomping at the bit there. I know you want to comment. So, so I, I have a couple of things to say. Um, we're starting tomorrow. My, my group is, uh, is working with the, with the, the local uh, authorities. We're going to be able to do an antibody test starting tomorrow that has a very high, greater than 95% sensitivity and specificity for this. So you will be able to tell, you know, based on population, the reason that they're doing this is to see what the penetration is in the population, as well as find out if you've been exposed. But it is a qualitative test. In other words, it will detect antibodies. It's not going to give us the quantity of antibodies which may become important in terms of determination of immunity, but it will also give a, an idea, like if you were exposed, if you think that, that that flu that you had, that your flu test was negative back in January actually was COVID. And so it will, will help with that and also get, give us an idea of, of the percent of people in the population that has it. So we're able to offer that. I don't know what the turnaround time is going to be for that, um, but that is, that is, that is kind of neat. Cause everybody in my, all the provider, all the people in my office are wondering, did, you know, did we have it? We had, do, do we have it? So we've actually begun to offer, uh, to do that. The other thing is, is with the actual viral testing, there were times when we were pretty close to the bottom where we couldn't do our population. You know, we were doing six to 10 tests on patients a day. Um, but we're able to do that initially. We were using, uh, uh, public publicly held labs, Quest and Lab, we use LabCorp and the turnaround time was like six or seven days. We were able to switch it to the, to the local, uh, the county over at Wadsworth in Syracuse. And now we get one day turnaround, which is, it's not perfect. I would like a test that I can tell you before you leave, like I can the flu, that it's, it's there, or it's not. Even that, those are, those are not PCR testing. The type of testing that that is, is not as accurate, but at least if it's there, it's there. And then you can do a backup test to make sure that you don't have a false negative. So and we're Jack, getting better. It's all availability though. I mean, I've yeah. been fortunate. It's all availability. And, and Jack, the, the things that you're, you're wanting, right. those are programs that have been dismantled over the past six to seven years. Yeah. That, you know, we, we had programs that they, they were intended to be able to ramp up and provide tests that could answer the questions that we need to know. Are you shedding infectious material now? Are right. you, do you have antibodies and are those antibodies at levels that indicate past infection, current immunity? Those things, they're not money makers unless you have an outbreak. And right. this is something that public health officials and public, public yeah. health agencies worldwide have just dropped the ball and mm -hmm. we are paying the price right now. So you, Jack, Jack mentioned uh, PCR analysis. I, I just wanted to point out, um, I, I just saw through the grapevine a couple, a few days ago, EMSL Labs, who's a fairly large uh, lab company in the, in the States that does environmental 
analyses, not not in the medical community, not doing any of that, but they now have a qPCR uh, swab analysis for environmental testing for COVID on surfaces, which so that's finally it's you know it's the first one I think that's that's hit the market for the from the indoor environmental side, not from the yeah not, Bob again, they have one uh, announced from Pathcon as well, okay. probably about the same time a little bit okay. and remember they're not testing COVID, that's the disease they're, they're testing oh, right. SARS. SARS-CoV-2, yeah, correct. Yeah. I wanted to mention the NIH is actually just, a, I think it was a week ago, they announced a study of people who have, do not have uh, symptoms. If you have symptoms, you can't participate. They're trying to test uh, uh, some antibody testing. So it's a free test. They'll call you, uh, consent you, and then they can send you uh, a kit to do a blood sample that's sent into them. And they're trying to uh, do this study across the United States to get an idea of how many people are in fact uh, uh, negative or positive? Uh, and I put a link in there for the uh, the panelists uh, to take a look at that. But anybody can sign up for that uh, NIH study, and and that might be something you should uh, post, Bob. It's an opportunity. Yeah, we'll we'll have that post show. While 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 we're on this though, Kevin, I'm going to do a little shift gear toward you because you are unique to the other panelists in that most of most of them are dealing. You know, Jesse's going in the field and going out and and picking people up, but everyone else is dealing with people coming to them. Your, the program, your uh, program at Children's Mercy Hospital is more of an outreach program, right? So your program is to go out into the homes and deal with those environmental situations of people's homes. So how has that been affected by this pandemic? Oh, completely shut down. I, I mean, obviously we're concerned about uh, uh, environmental threats and exposures in people's homes, but uh, right now this is a greater threat uh, and, and we're not looking either to infect them or to have the risk of bringing the infection back. So all the home visiting programs I'm in contact with around the country have been completely shut down, as well as uh, our program uh, uh, visits homes, assesses for environmental issues, and then actually works with uh, organizations to fix them. So we work with contractors and intervention folks who, who might go in and, and uh, remove uh, uh, environmental contaminants or, or fix plumbing or, or whatever. So how do you get uh, the, the contractors to be able to go and, and, and uh, resolve these issues safely? Well, right now, unless it's an emergency, uh, we're not doing it. And, and, and unfortunately, we've had a couple of emergencies. So then that gets into the question of, well, how do you get that person in safely to uh, you know, install a, a new gas stove or something, uh, repair a furnace that, that might be leaking gas? It's a dangerous condition that ought to be dealt with immediately. Uh, what is the process? And there is some CDC guidance, as everybody said, though. Same problem. Uh, that person uh, contractor may have never even heard of PPE and it's never put a mask on uh, like some of our governors who've put them on upside down. Uh, you, 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 we've got to have a structure to give them some basic guidance uh, and then given the guidance, uh, do they comply? Are they following it? And then uh, as we've hinted at, their own anxiety about that. You've got people who are worried about somebody coming to their house. You've got people worried about going to the house. Uh, there's just tremendous anxiety from, from all aspects of this. Uh, however, uh, somebody mentioned telemedicine. So we've got a robust active telemedicine program at the hospital. We've been doing telemedicine for a long time. We have shown, we've even published on it, showing that uh, for certain kinds of uh, health interactions, telemedicine is as effective as a regular uh, clinic visit, uh, especially when you're talking about just general advocacy for managing of, of a health condition or a disease or following up with a patient. But uh, we have a whole different perspective. So how do we get uh, in 
interact with the family to do a walkthrough of their house to visually assess the conditions in the home and try to offer at least some guidance and education about how to deal with things that may be making the condition they have a whole lot worse. And then many of the patients we've worked with are immunocompromised patients, cancer or transplants who, who are dealing with potential environmental threats that could potentially kill them. Uh, guiding them through uh, effective management of the home to reduce potential environmental risks. Huge, huge challenge. What, but what should the general public be doing, you know, uh, to actually reduce their risks? I mean, we, you know, we've had such, such convoluted uh, messaging, you know, coming, coming from the top for the past Stay several home. months. You know, Stay at home. masks are no good. Now, wear masks. Can't be out in public without masks. You know, Joe and I, I, Joe likes to point this every time, but right since the beginning on the first panel we did on this, it, the general consensus was no masks. And we were both pointing out the fact that, well, masks aren't designed to protect the wearer. The masks are designed to reduce your transmission to others. You know, respirators protect you. Masks protect the people around you. But they haven't, they haven't even, there's no demonstration that that actually works for this situation. It is an assumption. It's probably well, a there's one. a lot of assumptions, though. That's the problem. We're doing this thing ass backwards. Yes. This whole thing is like. <laughs> well, so at some point you, you end up having to make assumptions. One point I want to make that, that came uh, to light here uh, in an article I read, we've been dealing with these kind of infectious diseases for thousands of years. Uh, there are ancient texts that everybody has read, religious texts that offer guidance for physical distancing in order to reduce the passing of an infection. Uh, ask your grandmother uh, how they managed polio in the 50s. They actively managed it through physical distancing in communities. And everybody understood what physical distancing was. And that for this summer, because we had a polio outbreak, you can't play with your friends because we've got a kid who you were in class with who has polio. We don't have a vaccine for it. If you all get it, it's a debilitating, potentially fatal disease. Uh, the problem is we as a society have completely lost that memory. Uh, it's like the, the tsunamis in Indonesia. When people went back and looked, there were all these ancient uh, temples and things that had writings describing what you should do when there's a tsunami. Everybody forgot about it. Everybody forgot about the clues that a tsunami was coming. And so many people died because we hadn't had one in hundreds of years. Yeah, but we have short attention span theater now, Kevin. <laughs> about what we're supposed to do. And it's the most basic thing. Uh, and yet people struggle with it and uh, resist it when it's very straightforward and practical. So, so, I mean, all this talk, there's tons of talk about, you know, we're going to get back to normal. We're going to get things back to normal. We got to get the economy going. You know, it's like, you know, what, what are we supposed to be looking at here? It's like, again, to me, I just, I, I it seems like we're watching a really, really bad reality television show unfolding in this country. And it just, what are you guys' thoughts well, on this? What, what should we be doing? What, what are so what are the measure so. points before? First of all, will we ever get back to normal? What is normal? You know, what would normal be if we were to get back to it? And and how do we even make the measurement of heading that way? Well, I would recommend reading uh, the report that's out there from the American Enterprise Institute that is specifically called Not, uh, "National Co uh, Coronavirus Response: A Road to Map to Reopening." 
and it lays out a very specific staged process and what indicators to look for. Uh, and and uh, it has four phases to it. And the, the key phases are uh, A, to slow the spread, and then B, once you've slowed the spread, uh, uh, just what we're all thinking about, the cautious, careful, staged reopening where you gotta have testing, you gotta be doing contact tracing, some of these things that we've heard about, uh, dis, uh, setting up uh, thresholds of action, uh, setting up triggers that tell you you're ready to move to the next phase. And then phase three is establishing protection so that you can lift all these restrictions. So it's very straightforward. It's extremely well-written. I'm, I'm happy to, to post a link to it. Uh, it it's a, a great guide. There are several of them out there like that, but that's a really good one. I mean, again, who and who's making these determinations or who, who should be right? You know, obviously, David, you know, we've over and over. We've had the conversation on the show uh, about, you know, how we've maybe allowed our public health sector, at least through the United States and probably globally to some extent. Right. We've allowed it to erode. It's become less of a priority than it probably should have been. So, you know, who who is who do we rely on to say it's OK to get back? You know, well, is, is it the medical I think community? We have, to, we have to take some time to actually look at what is getting back to normal look like. Um, I, I think recognizing, uh, and we've talked about this on some other shows, and, and uh, we've published some stuff on this from the American Industrial Hygiene Association, even the EPAs recognize this, that the facilities we're going back into, the hotels, the restaurants, the office buildings that have been sitting stagnant for four, five, six weeks, um, they may, they, are likely to pose health risks in and of themselves. The water systems we're seriously concerned with that they've been sitting stagnant, not chlorinated, and we may be looking at a, a, a significant number of outbreaks of Legionnaire's disease, which also causes symptoms consistent with COVID-19. So that's one thing that I think it's a tremendous lift for water systems, uh, public water supplies to hyperchlorinate those systems, to flush those city lines, to, to get good chlorinated water back so that the buildings can then get good chlorinated water. And there may be uh, contamination and colonization that's occurred while we're waiting. That needs to be done now before you say you're, that should be one of the big parts is making sure the buildings you're going back into are safe, healthy, and, and are, are not going to, you're not sending back somebody back into a minefield. We fixed one issue or addressing one issue, sending them right back into another. So that's, that's another aspect. The other thing is engineering controls. And, you know, I am, I, I've been dealing with air cleaner issues and questions on air cleaners for years. I can tell you there's going to be the snake oil salesman out there selling every ionizing, um, ozonating gadget out there. But I can tell you that, you know, HEPA filtration, as loud and energy intensive, intensive as it is, does help to reduce and is used in hospitals to help mitigate um, airborne contaminants. And that may be another aspect we're looking at, is the use of HEPA-filtered air scrubbers in occupied spaces as an additional layer on top of administrative controls, other engineering controls, and PPE. So, so how, how are things? 
Okay, go, Jeff. Jeff, Jeff. Yeah, so um, I want to kind of uh, just do a, a quick question is that what are some of the things that you have now learned and now become part of your process? So Jesse, I want to go to you is what do you think there's some things that you'll now probably do for the rest of your career or be common procedures that prior to this you may not have done? Like you talked about, like we assess a lot more before we put them into the, the, the vehicle. So are there some other things you've learned that these will probably become like common routines for how we now interact with any patient? Because uh, you, they could have the flu. There's a variety of things that now could be, we now understand the airborne contagion concept. So what, what are some things you've learned that we've now adjusted our procedures? Well, it's using common practices more often, um, treating everyone as if they have something potentially communicable. Um, you don't always do that with say people who were, I mean, you still take precautions for blood and uh, saliva and other things, but you don't often think about things that can be transmitted airborne if they're not showing symptoms. Well, if they could have a compound fracture, you show up, I, probably in the past, you would not thought about that as a potential risk. And now it, it's always on your mind. Yeah, you've got a, it's, it's a constant, it's a mask for everything now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's a new meaning for universal precautions now. So Jack, uh, are you guys going to now incorporate more of your, um, the, the virtual concept of interacting with patients? You know, the telemedicine, is that something you guys think of as being more uh, part of your practice? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think at any, at this point, uh, people like it. Um, I'm okay with it. The, the debate, it will be more or less with the patient as to what's appropriate and what's not appropriate to use, use telemedicine for. And then the other thing is, are they going to reimbursement? I mean, right now uh, we are being reimbursed at essentially the same rate, almost the same rate as if we saw the patient face to face. So that was not the case before. So it wasn't encouraged, but I, I think there's a variety of reasons to encourage it, you know, perhaps at a, at a, at a re, re, reduced rate than it is right now. But I, I see that happening down the line. I think it's going to become part of our compendium and a lot more acceptable. And I was uh, not a big fan of it before, but but I kind of like it for a lot of things. Not everything, and it leaves me with a little discomfiture if, if I'm really, I don't like to guess. I like data, I like tactile stuff. I don't like guessing, and and I it sometimes you're not exactly sure, especially when you're addressing you know respiratory things over telemedicine. You're just, I don't like it. I, really, I, like I, yeah, I have really good insurance and it was not covering telemedicine and my company went, crazy on that they're like wait what you need to change that right now and if not they said they would cover our costs to right. do that so they, they my company stepped in so uh christy how about you what are some of the things that in your normal routine is now you you'll probably realize that i will probably be doing this for a long time even after we've confirmed that this is a low risk there's probably some things that you'll just assume are out there what are, what are some of the physical things or things you'll do to change your routine well, um, I can tell you for what I do, telemedicine is not going to be an option because people come in. So that's not going to be it for me. Um, it's really just going to be the, the cleaning. You know, I, I had told uh, Bob earlier that where I live, and this is just a little slightly off, off subject, we are, uh, the city of Mount Clemens is number two, the city of Detroit for bed bugs. So there's a lot of heebie-jeebies out there. So it's just going to be more, you know, staying on that two-hour cleaning making sure even with psych patients that we're always wearing gloves for whatever, because sometimes we don't deal with some of the medical stuff. So there's not, 
there isn't always a whole lot of glove wearing. So it's going to be wearing gloves. It's going to be education because that's what nurses do. We're educators, you know, teaching our patients to cover your mouth when you cough and you sneeze, wash your hands, use the sanitizer, you know, it, it, focus on the hygiene and the cleaning and the cleanliness. And I, I think we're going to just see more of that than we have in the past. Great. So Jeffrey, do you think that um, more people will not be in this predicament we are now that I would assume that now, um, not just hospitals and facilities or uh, others, but even homeowners will now have 10 or 12 masks. We're going to have boxes of gloves, you know, people are talking about like, you know, we've learned from hoarders, but in general, I think that, you know, a, a year from now, everybody will have these things in their house as a concept. Do you agree with that kind of, you know, the future? Yeah, I think that it, this is going to immensely raise the awareness of uh, what this threat has been or what future threats could be. And I think that there will be um, a, a huge campaign to make people more uh, more prepared for it. And I think that the um, I think that the governments uh, on whatever level are going to be a lot more uh, inclined to uh, have a better supply chain not just for hospitals, but just for the public health in general, uh, as far as any, you know, personal protective equipment or, you know, even some of the engineering controls we talked about, some of the products that are going to open up, you know, the product potentials that are going to open up for that are, are going to be, uh, yes, that's, that's going to grow. There's going to be a lot of growth. You think they'll look to manufacture in the United States? Oh, yeah. Oh, no doubt. I mean, that's a big, you know, that's a whole separate topic, right? There's a big weak link of how we get our supplies. So, you know, our supply chain is already stretched across, uh, across multiple continents. Um, and, you know, under these circumstances, we're stretched thin, even in a best case scenario. And, and we've mentioned this in the, in the previous shows, all the environmental factors that affect the indoor environments and ultimately affect us and our health and healthiness they aren't going away. We're, we're coming into hurricane season now, you know, later on in the summer will be wildfire season. You know, the West coast will go on fire again. Australia will probably go on fire again in another five months. Uh, David's worried about a tornado today. Yeah. David's almost, you know, this is all right. All this stuff is still going to be there. And COVID-19 from everything I'm seeing here, isn't going anywhere soon. Well, and the other part of that is, as you talked about people stocking up on PPE, uh, COVID-19 is going to be around for at least two years, if not three. And we're going to go through this dance of uh, sudden uh, increases in infections where we're going to have to put restrictions in place. People are going to have to get out their masks, their PPE, put them away, get them out, put them away. But people are going to have to keep and maintain a supply of things as the, the infection rate changes in their city. And you, do you all see that it's it's going to be ebbing and tiding too? Like I think there's this misconception again, and this I'm going to pick on the Americanism of always wanting everything to be nice and neat like a script. You know, it's like it's going to peak and then it's going to be over, and the hero and heroine are going to save us, and it's all you know, it's all going to go away like uh, you know, like contagion. But the fact is, it's not going to be one peak, right? Hey, Bob. You know, there's something that people I haven't heard a lot of people talking about and we really don't know what's happening in Asia and South America at least what's really happening (laughs) where they are much much less prepared to deal with this than we are and I think it's going to linger there for a lot longer and it's not going to go away there and we're we're, this is this is going to be a new normal I think they're 
I think the threat of this virus is going to last for, for years. Um, and, and the, you know, the other part, the other thing I would mention is that there are, you know, um, the world population has, has doubled uh, since the year you and I were born. And there's a lot more human action, human interaction, and a lot more people to transmit this. So if you look at it, if if you look at if you build a model on that, um, it's it's going to be a it's going to be a hard thing to rein in. That's to say nothing of the next outbreak. <laughs> and that's yeah, and that's the other factor. Like we're de- we're dealing with the SARS, uh, you know, uh, co- uh, uh, COVID two, right? That's one virus. And it seems like there seems to be a, a predominance of viruses jumping from the animal kingdom to the human kingdom. And a lot of that, I still believe all links back to the climate change factors that, you know, that we're doing. We're changing the planet, not to our best advantage, right? Yeah, well, Bob, it, it, a lot of it comes back to how we as a society really stink at handling outbreaks and uh, communicable and infectious diseases. You know, we can look back at how we have failed to deal with Legionnaire's disease. And, uh, you know, this is not one that you contract from people. You contract it from building water systems. Mm -hmm. When you see that you have had a 650% increase in 15 years over something that we supposedly know a lot about, that's a failure. That's just a big fail. And everything that we did wrong in trying to deal with that or not deal with it has been accelerated. In the COVID uh, in the COVID nineteen uh, response, it's just it happens faster, it happens more intensely, and if we don't, as a society, figure out how to deal with uh, whether it's bacteria or viruses or uh, prions, if we don't start to deal with them effectively, then we will suffer the results. And continue to suffer the results. Well, one of the things they're saying is, uh, of course, if, if COVID-19 gets established in the Southern Hemisphere, that will really help uh, its opportunity to reinfect and have a, a wave in the Northern Hemisphere next year. It just depends on what kind of uh, physical distancing and other practices they put in place, seeing what's happening in the Northern Hemisphere. But I mean, isn't that almost a guarantee that that's what's going to happen? I mean, I, I don't see us globally getting a handle on this anytime soon that's the difference it's it's the level of infection the greater the effort uh in other parts of the world again to flatten the curve uh the lower the overall infection and the better the healthcare community uh and thank you all for your service the better they can manage do what they do best if they have the capacity uh, they can take care of the the vast majority of these patients the problem is the system gets completely overwhelmed so so now i have to i'm going to throw this in there i know we've got like four minutes left and i'm going to throw a bomb into the room because i I have to say this um are we having a harder time dealing with this because of the fact that we're a for-profit medical system in the united states over other places (laughs) Yes or no? Yeah, yeah. Otherwise, we'll, yes or no. We'll take, yeah, yes or no. <laughs> well, you can orate a little, <laughs> right? Jack, you're you're. you're Jack, the, I, yeah. I already know you're going to go there, Jack. I know you are. I don't. I don't. I don't. I don't know if there's a there's a good answer. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. I think that if we were a, I, I mean, I look at how England has handled it, how Germany's handled it. Germany's had some successes, but there's I, I guess. It's a good question. I don't know the answer. I'm really not 
I don't know the answer to that. It's a good, it's a good Bob. <laughs> yeah, that's your answer. That's okay. Christy, how about you? You're up the um, okay. I act the same way regardless. I'm not, I was going to retire. I'm not retiring specifically because I can't replace myself and I can't leave my patients with and my office in this mess. Well, I'm going to give you some good news for me, but that's another story on the outside. I'm going to summarize your answer. Your answer is that I am concerned about profit, but I'm more compassionate than my checkbook or what's going to happen to financially. I, 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 I see that in your indirect statement saying, I don't know because I care more than trying to make sure I made money last month. Right. Yeah. Um, I think I'm just going to say I'm absolutely not qualified at all to answer that question. Um, I just take care of my patients. And I, here in Detroit, I know a lot of the hospitals are suffering, even the for-profit hospitals, because they're treating patients insurance, whether or not they can pay. So I, I don't I, like, I don't know the answer to that question either. It, that's a, that's not a nursing question. It's also not a question to put in at the end of a session, but I, I just couldn't because it, it's, I had it here in the notes and I couldn't let it go. I'm sorry. Jesse's I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yes, if you look at the communities that's affecting the most, they're, they're people who don't have access or as much access to healthcare. And that's partially because of a private healthcare system. You know, one of the nurses, access, one of the nurses yeah. that posted on Facebook, I think she works, she works at a local hospital system has uh, stated that most of the patients that she treated were low income and, um, you know, don't have access to some of the same facilities that some of us middle to higher income people have. So I don't know if there's a correlation there or not. I just thought it was an interesting little tidbit. There is, and that, that, that's a concern. Uh, as the outbreak moves across mm -hmm. the country, that is the major concern is that it will be in the the communities that don't have access right. to healthcare. It's the, it's the communities of color. It's the disenfranchised. It's, it's, it's those that just have no... And if you and if you think about it in the grants, kind of look at it from a mental health standpoint, these are also the same people that have higher comorbidities, I can never say that, comorbidities, yeah, right. <laughs> um, diabetes, heart disease, they all smoke. There's a whole handful of other things that make COVID worse for those people. I don't smoke. I try and eat healthy. I have a nice balance of healthy and unhealthy. So maybe that's why I never got sick. I don't know. Also have access. Yeah, and I have yeah. good ex I have yeah, access health, to good yeah. to medical good medical care too. Thank you, Jesse. Very very good. Yeah. All right, wait wait to throw the bomb at the end. So, um, sorry, I so, couldn't help it. Yeah, all right. So we'll do we'll do one last. Uh, what are your uh, final thoughts? It could be from anything, but we'll make it brief. So um, we'll just start with you, Jeffrey, and talk about you know what is it that you're uh, want to get your one short message out to people about um, where we're at or where we will be. Uh, wow. <laughs> That's a tough one. I know. Yeah, that is a tough one, but I think that we, I think that we have to be vigilant. I don't, I think that, you know, to reflect what Bob said, this isn't, this isn't something we can just wish away. And, uh, you know, somebody in a cape isn't going to come down and save us. Um, we really have to engage in, a uh, a, a wholesale change of attitude and, and, uh, and the health, the whole healthcare system is going to have to evolve with this. I think we're going to have to look at the economics of this and, and recognize how much uh, a situation like this is going to affect the economy. And that's what's going to get people's attention, like it or not. And I think when that happens, they'll, they'll be more, um, they'll, they, there's going to be more of a motivation to shore up the healthcare system. All right, David, I know you, you've uh, been asked this kind of question from us many times. So why don't you go ahead and go next while other people can think about their answer. Well, I, I think one of the big things we need to really realize is that public health is economic health. And we have been, you know, penny wise and pound foolish 
in dismantling the public health infrastructure, the, the fundamental cornerstones to make sure you have a healthy and educated population. And um, you, know, you can have a great medical system, but if you have nothing but sick people showing up, it's gonna be stressed. And I, I think you know, looking onto the dismantlement of public health agencies um, and the loss of the institutional knowledge at the state and federal levels and at the county levels, uh, until we start building up the foundations, we can't build a better infrastructure on top of it. I, I do think that most time people go to those places, they are sick, just to follow up on your, your statement there, but it's, that was just kind of humor. So, um, Kevin? Well, I couldn't agree more. We're, we're learning uh, the hard way that uh, how vital uh, public health is to society. Uh, uh, <laughs> It's a fundamental need. It's, it should be a fundamental purpose of, uh, of having a government is, is protecting the health of the population, meaning public health is essential. But the key message I would uh, give is uh, that I also read recently from people uh, who went through uh, polio and other things. Don't let the disease uh, control living, uh, even though you may be isolated. Uh, they emphasize you just live life. You, you find ways to live life differently. You, you do online calls like this, but find ways to live life, find, find ways to keep yourself healthy, keep your, your psychologically keep yourself healthy, get outside where you can, but it, it's, it's live life and uh, you know, work to uh, manage as best you can uh, until uh, the physical distancing and other things that you must do uh, can be relaxed. Hi, Jesse, you're up. Uh, again, I agree with them both. Uh, stay at home. <laughs> Make sure you're paying attention to scientists and doctors, not necessarily politicians and TV stars. And stay safe. Christy, did I get your final comments? I don't. I'm, I lost track of the group. Oh, me? Did you say yeah. Christy? Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, no, but um, I agree with everybody else. You know, stay away. You know, we live in a, we live in a really interesting time where we have all this technology available to keep in touch with our loved ones. Use that instead of going to their house or meeting somewhere. And you know, we have so many great things available to us that we should be using those. It's really not the same, but until we can all be together again, use the FaceTime and the computer and. Hang out with your kids. I don't know why everybody's having such a hard time with this. Nobody's in school. What a great time to spend with the kids. Good point. <clears throat> so I'm going to use what's in my background. So at Hayward School, we, we're recommending that you get to know your house a lot better, um, like you would sometimes maybe your car. You know your car pretty well. But we recommend opening your windows if possible. We have some recommendations about even if it's a, a bad allergy time frame. Um, uh, be careful with the chemicals you're using because uh, too many chemicals right now with a close-up house is not a good idea. Don't overlap chemicals. We have some great recommendations at HaywardScore.com for our COVID page. So we think that you should be um, more sensitive to the environment you are now uh, engaged with uh, uh, and get to know your house a whole lot better. Yeah, and I would say um, w one of the things that I've, I've been trumpeting since the beginning here is that We've, we've already built an indoor environmental uh, remediation consulting industry worldwide for, for the different sectors, right? Dealing with uh, chemical, chemical concerns, dealing with uh, microbiological concerns, dealing with, you know, a whole host of different indoor environmental issues under ventilation, uh, you know, you go on and on. Um, all those things are still there. 
None of that, you know, none of none of any of that has gone away uh, with the advent of uh, COVID-19. So we still, you know, if anything, we may be spending more time in our indoor environments now because we're cooped up a little bit. So I think, you know, as to Joe's point, I, I think there's a lot more we need to be having focused on, you know, improving those indoor environments and really going back to the source of this whole thing is what's happening on, on a whole planet level, right? I mean, the fact that we're getting outbreaks that are, you know, again, organisms jumping from the animal kingdom to the human kingdom, uh, you know, and the fact that we're having more extreme weather events and all this stuff that they are kind of tied together, kids. Okay. This, this stuff isn't all dis, disassociated. Um, we're going to have to change the way we do stuff and I'll get off my soapbox here, but I, I think that's really, uh, it was going to have to be a paradigm shift. I, I really believe that. So, um, one of the things I will mention, we're at, we're at the actually overtime now, um, healthyindoors.com is where we're located uh, for Healthy Indoors Magazine, as well as the Healthy Indoors Show and our podcast. We have a whole repository of information, uh, all the recordings of our shows. Um, yeah, Joe's putting that up there. So healthyindoors.com, if you tag on the uh, HI show uh, in the top menu, it'll get you to all the past recordings. Uh, now we have a new tab with HI podcast. And I see Joe updated his graphic. Thank you. Uh, so we actually uh, have that now. So you, you can uh, listen to our golden voices while you drive around. Um, I guess you could watch the video too, but I wouldn't recommend it. Um, but we are free. Uh, we're a free information source, and we try to be your source for credible information on this. And of course, this is an evolving, an evolving issue, an evolving topic. Things are, you know, things are going to be changing, and we'll, we'll continue to report on that. Um, Joe, any closing thoughts? Because you, I, you have to have at least one. Uh, yeah, no, it's just that, you know, uh, Bob and I have tried to make an effort to uh, bring um, some of the best people in the country here to talk about some of the things you're concerned with. So if you have other suggestions, uh, please send those to us or throw them in the chat box. And uh, we're here every Thursday, even next Thursday with the uh, other conferences that are also happening. <clears throat> and uh, we look forward to providing you the information that you can't find anywhere else. So I really, um, I, I thought this was a great panel today. I really, uh, you know, was uh, thrilled with how, how we covered so many areas and uh, you guys are just a wealth of information for us. So uh, we, we'd always like to welcome any of you back uh, at a future date to continue our discussions here. Uh, but with that, uh, it's time to close out. Um, I'm Bob Krell for the Healthy Indoor Show and Healthy Indoors Magazine. We'll see you next Thursday. 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time here for the Healthy Indoor Show. Stay safe. <laughs>